From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Police reform involves changing law enforcement culture from within, like encouraging officers to speak up against their colleagues. Sometimes when you have these internal investigations, the officer is retaliated against when they're trying to report an officer that's doing wrong. We'll talk with the Aurora Police Accountability Task Force about the challenges that come with rethinking policing. We want to reduce the amount of times or the opportunities for a negative altercation to happen between someone that's having a mental health crisis and is misinterpreted as this person being resistant to a law enforcement officer. We'll also get perspective on how efforts in Colorado to achieve reform compare with what's happening nationally, and if oversight without enforcement power is just more talk. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. We're getting more news today on the investigation into the mass shooting at a King Supers in Boulder last month. Law enforcement officials are holding a press conference within the hour. Ahead of that, I have CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, here with an update. Hi, Allison. Morning, Avery. Allison, what do you know about the additional charges filed against the alleged gunman? Well, we know from the court documents filed last night that there were a lot more people who were close to being killed or even shot at than we initially knew in this investigation. Prosecutors named 19 additional victims of attempted murder. That includes people who were very near where shots were fired or were shot at and were uninjured. That also includes a a number of police officers and sheriff's deputies who engaged in a firefight with the gunman in the store. They, too, are named victims of of attempted murder counts. What else can you glean that's new from the court documents? Well, we know also that the 22-year-old gunman was carrying illegal ammunition magazine when he fired shots. You know, as a reminder, in Colorado, um, high-capacity magazines are banned, and anything over 15 rounds um, is not—you can't purchase that here or possess that here legally. Um, The Boulder District Attorney, Michael Doherty, filed 10 charges of carrying an illegal magazine— Uh, when the gunman reportedly killed the 10 people inside the store and outside in the parking lot. So in addition to the charges filed, what else do you want to know? Well, you know, in about 40 minutes, Boulder prosecutors and law enforcement are holding what I imagine will be one of their final press briefings on this investigation, you know, mostly before it moves over to the courts. And I imagine we're going to learn this morning about the size of the magazine the gunman was carrying, the number of shots fired in the store. We know from the search warrant in his house that investigators found additional guns inside the home, but we don't know much beyond that. I know people will ask, um, I will ask, um, where he may have purchased this illegal magazine, um, how he got that illegal magazine. Um, because we know the gun itself was purchased legally. Allison, what's happening with the gunman's court case right now? 
Well, the alleged gunman, Ahmad al-Aliwi Alisa, was jailed shortly after being taken into custody after the shooting. He was shot in the thigh and was treated at the hospital beforehand. And at his first court appearance um, in Boulder, right shortly, you know, a few days after the shooting, he was in a wheelchair. He's now being held without bond. um, And for security reasons, he was moved out of the Boulder jail and to an undisclosed location, probably another county jail in the metro area. He's had one court appearance and another one next month. And we do know his public defenders have raised the specter of an unspecified mental illness, but we don't know anything beyond that. What about motive? Does anyone know anything on that front yet? You know, yeah, that is still a huge question. um, And that is still, as far as I know, pretty elusive, Avery. Um, I'm sure it'll be asked today, but I haven't heard investigators have any direct leads But if they share something, I'll I'll be sure and update you. Allison, how is the city responding to the shooting in terms of its gun policies? We know, coincidentally, that about a week before the shooting, a judge actually struck down a two-year-old ban on assault weapons in large-capacity magazines in the city. Yeah. Um, This week, the Boulder City Council actually passed a resolution that calls on national leaders to pass gun control legislation that they say would prevent mass shootings. This includes policy changes like six-day waiting periods, a ban on assault rifles. You know, at the state level, um, Governor Jared Polis this month signed a bill that requires people to secure their firearms in a safe location when they're not in use and mandates that lost or stolen firearms be reported to authorities within five days. Um, Neither of those bills necessarily would affect this case, I don't think. But, um, you know, some of the bigger policy issues, the assault, on, the, the ban on assault weapons, there hasn't been any movement at the state level on that yet. Thank you, Allison. I know you have to head up to Boulder now, so I will let yeah. you go. Thanks, Avery. Appreciate it. That's CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. How does a community heal its relationship with the police? Following the death of Elijah McClain, the city of Aurora formed a police accountability task force in February 2020. The task force came back this month with its recommendations, which include forming an independent citizen's oversight office. Ryan Ross is the facilitator of the community task force. Omar Montgomery is the task force, is a member of the task force. And Nicole Johnston is, the Aurora, is an Aurora City Council member. My first question for the group, how will the guilty verdict in the murder of George Floyd inform their efforts. This is Omar Montgomery, uh, president of the um, Aurora branch of the NAACP. And I would say that it will reinforce the reason why this task force was developed in the first place. Before George Floyd, you know, we had Elijah McClain and we still have um, remnants of the Elijah McClain case that's still out there. A bunch of investigations Still recommendations are coming towards um, Aurora um, Police Department. So this task force just reinforced the need of independent oversight entities to help address police violence, training, as well as improve public safety. This is Ryan Ross. Um, What I would add is, is it just, hopefully it gives folks in authorizing positions the courage to move forward in the appropriate way. I think sometimes there's, um, a spirit of cover or some anxiety or fear in doing the right thing. And so hopefully the verdict um, will, will remind everybody of their moral responsibility to do what's right 
and to, you know, take the appropriate actions and, you know, accept recommendations, implement recommendations, but continue to push forward in the, in the right way um, as it relates to any of these kinds of um, concerns or issues. I'll just add that Dr. Ross and Omar Montgomery and I started this process in November of 2019 before George Floyd. And with the verdict, I was thinking of his daughter, Gianna Floyd, who last Father's Day had said, my daddy changed the world. And I just think that the that the verdict, while we were working on this before there was such a um, spotlight on the issue. Um, as the others have said, it really, really shows the magnitude of us doing this, not just nationally or statewide or locally. So we need to really keep that, that momentum. And let's talk specifically about the work your task force has done. One of the biggest recommendations the task force made is for an oversight organization called the Office of Police Accountability, Transparency and Transformation. Ryan, can you explain a little bit what that would do? Sure. I think from the perspective of the task force members, what this oversight entity would do um, would be an individual uh, or a separate operating entity working in collaboration with the police chief, civil service, and really having the ability to investigate, provide additional recommendations, but also have the authority to look at things, potentially overturn things if there are questions or concerns from the community. And then also, I think probably most importantly is really hear the community and be the voice to facilitate justice for the community. And I know that community piece has been vital to your work. How did the task force seek input from the community and outside organizations? Well, to Nicole's point, start going back to November, uh, the whole work was founded on community meetings and partnership with NAACP, other organizations. It was a tremendous opportunity and experience for me to be able to facilitate those. But um, multiple meetings where community came in and shared and was heard and asked questions. Um, And then once the task force was formed, follow-up community forums, uh, education uh, from, you know, within APD and and folks from the community. So just a lot of conversation and engagement with community. Um, Even um, at one point, we even did some kind of flyer campaigns and, you know, inviting people to the the task force meetings, which were public twice a month over over the last year or so. So just create touch points for community to, to tap in. There's an email address, a website. Um, so just lots of lots of ways for community to just provide information. Omar, Ryan mentioned the Aurora Police Department. Would you expand a little bit more on how they were involved in this process? Obviously, this office would have a direct impact on them. <laughs> well, on, on the committee, there was, on the task force, there were 13 members plus one um, law enforcement officer that wasn't a voting member on the task force, but was a liaison to help address questions or protocols that we would need as we began to lay out these recommendations. With that stated, um, Chief Wilson was invited to, uh, as one of the um, individuals or one of the workshops that we had to learn more about um, police protocols. What exactly are they doing now? What changes are um, being implemented now? so that uh, we can know when we lay out our recommendations that we're not duplicating things or putting things that's already in place. With that stated, um, we have to understand that the reason why this task force was put together 
was to have that independent oversight. Yes, we want law enforcement involved. Yes, we want to see a change in policing, moving towards public safety and getting away from policing. And the only way to do that is for this entity to be as independent as possible, but yet working in partnership with Aurora PD. What kinds of powers do you envision the Office of Police Accountability, Transparency and Transformation having? And how could they be different from oversight efforts in other Colorado communities? Well, I can't speak for other communities. We know that Denver has an independent monitor and that independent monitor is able to make recommendations. I think with this one, we're saying that if possible, you know, it may be some chartered things that have to be done or something that has to be brought to vote. But we, uh, the committee is asking for subpoena power, being able to, if they feel like the Civil Service Commission got there, got it wrong, and the community says, hey, we want a third eye to look at this, then this entity, OPAC, should be that third eye to be able to look at um, excessive force cases and be able to make a recommendation or be able to say that an officer should be terminated or should be held accountable. This also goes for training, and this also goes for recruiting officers. And there are some concerns with similar oversight committees that they're seen as toothless. Ryan, can you help us understand how it is that OPAT would have some of these powers that would ensure that this is not the case? You know, in order for it to not be a you know, a checkbox or, or a, a figure type of organization, the organization has to be given power, whether that comes from the city manager, the city council, or through city charter. Uh, the only way that this happens is this office and those who are working in it have actual authority that is equal to that of, you know, the Civil Service Commission um, that has a direct line of collaboration and partnership to the, the chief and is active and engaging in, in all aspects of anything that affects citizens of Aurora from the police department. So they need to be able to engage in all of that and actually not be a recommending body, but actually have the power to initiate change. And also funding, making sure that it's funded mm-hmm. so that it's sustainable, not right. just um, stipends here and there, but a full staff so that when these video tapes come, or when discovery come, that there's a full and thorough investigation with professionals so that um, there could be the correct outcome. So it has to be staffed and it has to be funded. Councilmember Johnston, I want to bring you in here. Following the death of Elijah McClain, you proposed creating this police accountability task force, but there are also other reforms going on simultaneously. Can you talk a little bit about those and how the task force interacts with those? Absolutely. Um, Of course, when we started this process, it was the first official city process to address independent oversight and police reform within the city of Aurora. But since then, we passed this resolution in February of 2020. We had several reviews take place in a formal mechanism. Um, We have the city manager hired 21CP, which is a national community policing entity that goes into municipalities and does a complete review of the systems and then recommendations of reform. Those are going to be looking at patterns and practices of APD 
And we expect to have those detailed results and recommendations in the next month. Uh, we also have uh, the Attorney General Patterns and Practices investigation that was initiated on a legislative level through um, Senate Bill 217. So the Attorney General is also looking at those systems that we have in place and will come up with recommendations. Um, we had a independent review led by Jonathan Smith, a, a civil rights attorney, um, specifically on the Elijah McLean case. And those recommendations came out in February. And then finally, we have an FBI civil rights investigation on the Elijah McLean case. And that, I'm not sure of the timing for that, but that is, is pending as well. Omar, some other members of the task force have proposed that OPAT should have hiring, firing, and disciplinary powers. Um, And you mentioned that a little bit. Is there any pushback to this proposal, particularly from anyone with Aurora PD? I haven't talked to anyone from Aurora PD regarding those particular recommendations. But talking with some people who I know that are in law enforcement, some feel that that type of oversight is needed because it gives them the freedom to be able to report and do their job when they see an officer using excessive force. Sometimes when you have these internal investigations or you don't have a thorough investigation, the officer is retaliated against when they're trying to report an officer that's doing wrong. And with an entity like this, a safe to tell system that we're talking about as part of the recommendations, the officers can report another officer who is doing wrong and feel safe and know that it's going to be thoroughly investigated. So on one end, you may have some officers that push back, but at the same time, you have some officers that welcome this type of oversight so that they can do their job and feel safe on the streets as well. So it's another mechanism of accountability, even within the police department. Yes. Giving OPAT disciplinary authority would require a change in the city charter. Councilmember Johnson, what would that mean? Sure. We have our, our city charter, which is our constitution for the for our local municipality. And if we ever make a change for the city charter, that has to go through a ballot measure. It has to go on a, an actual ballot for voters to vote in the city of Aurora on the outcome of that ballot. So anything that requires a charter change is going to have to go to the vote of the people. Brian, do you get the sense that there is widespread community support for an office like the Office of the Police Accountability, Transparency and Transformation and for that kind of a change in the city charter? You know, I do. I, I think that there are citizens of Aurora who have unfortunately been involved in or have witnessed um, directly or indirectly challenges with law enforcement. And there are others who haven't but recognize that there's not there's no real accountability measures. And so people want real accountability. When we think about even the George Floyd verdict, which, you know, should have happened, absolutely guilty on all three charges. The evidence was was very clear. But without that video, would we have gotten to real justice? Right. And so that's why it's important to have real accountability measures so people can actually feel like there's a pathway to justice. And I think that's what people want at this point. They just want justice and accountability. There's, I don't think the ask is anything outrageous. I mean, if this was Maslow's hierarchy, this would be survival, right? This is the basic request 
to be able to hold accountable those who we put in a trusted position in our community. And we need to be able to feel like um, those folks are here to protect us. And if not, um, that there's a way to ensure that they're not in, not in the situation to cause harm or abuse the rights and privileges that, that they have as peace officers in the community. And Omar, I want to ask about another recommendation the task force has made, pairing APD officers with mental health workers as crisis response teams. Why is this important? It's important because we want to reduce the amount of times or the opportunities for a negative altercation to happen between someone that's having a mental health crisis, someone that's experiencing trauma, and is misinterpreted as this person being resistant to a law enforcement officer. If you have that mental health professional there, if you have that that gap between the law enforcement officer and this person that's going through whatever they're going through, then you reduce the you reduce these negative interactions where violence has to be used. So it's important that you have that. I, I, I even argue not just mental health. We also need to have someone there that's like a nurse practitioner so that we can have a one stop shop to make sure this person. It's more of a public safety model than it is a policing model. We're looking at the whole human being before we have to resort to violence. We're making sure that this person is being protected, that this person is healthy, that this person has all the resources they need as a whole human being before we look at it as a law enforcement issue. In every single case, unless there's imminent danger, need to be responded to in that way. So we are happy that the city of Aurora started a pilot program doing this um, about a year or two ago. But more importantly, it needs to be sustainable moving forward. Part of sustainability is funding. I know that many police reform activists have advocated for reducing police department budgets and allocating that money elsewhere, like for social workers and mental health work. Ryan, is that part of the recommendation? No, um, the recommendations don't specifically talk about defunding or, or where the resources come from. It just says that the resources need to be provided. And I think that um, that's up for the city to to figure out. And I think it'll be a statement um, of support to see where the st- where the city pulls resources from to support these efforts. And so, you know, all, in business, you, you say, you know, you can tell the priorities by the uh, resources given. And so I think it's a great opportunity for the city to look at these recommendations and um, put their full support behind it by not only implementing, but providing the necessary resources and making the decisions. Councilmember Johnston, in your conversations with fellow council members, what's your impression of the receptiveness to these reforms? I think across the board, the the council wants, at the end of the day, transparency and accountability. Um, Some of the recommendations that the the task force made are more short-term and things that we can do and um, probably some more more support because we can do it more immediate. The challenge may be some of the the charter changes. I think as policymakers, we we like to have a holistic approach. So not just use one set of recommendations when making a really extensive policy change such as OPAT. So looking at the 21CP report, the Jonathan Smith investigation, the AG's report, eventually the the civil rights report on on FBI. But at the forefront, this is community driven and remember that. 
that's a priority. So I would say that there has been a lot of support to have an independent entity, how we get there, what pieces we use, we still have to dive in, um, which we'll probably be doing in the next month as the council to come up with those specifics. When presenting these recommendations to the city council, the task force called them a great start to improve the community and police relationship. I want to end on a very broad question. What does equitable policing look like? I would argue that the concept of policing just needs to be eradicated in itself. It's about equitable public safety. It's about making sure that um, no matter where you live or who you are, that when a law enforcement officer arrive or when a crisis team arrive, that we are treating this person with the utmost respect and dignity, recognize that they may be going through trauma or things of this nature, but there's no imminent danger. Let's look at it as a public safety issue before going into any type of concept of policing. Policing needs to be eradicated and equity public safety need to be implemented. And I would just add to that, just equity in the treatment of folks who break the law. Um, one of our task force members, Jason McBride, talks, gives an example of, you know, if somebody in the community or youth, for example, commits a crime, you know, their option is, you know, be arrested, go to jail, go to court, get a sentence. That same process doesn't exist for police officers. So if we're talking about equity when it comes to accountability, that same process needs to happen. And, and the community needs to feel like the police are there to protect them in all situations, not I'm only here to protect you until it involves a fellow police officer. And unfortunately, that's what it feels like. You know, as we got the George Floyd verdict, there was a shooting in another state, right? So this isn't specific to Aurora. This is a systematic issue across the country. And that that's where a larger conversation where our elected officials really need to come together and work across counties, state lines, and even at the federal level to do exactly what Omar just mentioned, which was eradicate policing and create a system where it's about public safety and being peace officers. At the end of the day, it's not about law enforcement. It should really be about how do we keep things peaceful? How do we problem solve? Where's the restoration issues versus the hard hand of law enforcement and militarized practices? I, I just want to add that we have to go beyond the narrow scope of the term policing when we talk about equity. We have to look at the laws. We have to look at what are we arresting people for? Who are on our police? One of the recommendations of the task force was having the police look at our community. So really having that, that commitment to diversifying our police. And then as as I said before, that holistic approach, it's the judicial system, it's the school to prison pipeline. And if we're going to address these equity issues, we have to go beyond that narrow scope of just looking at traditional policing and look at the entire system. Nicole, Ryan and Omar, thank you all so much for your time and thank you for sharing. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Nicole Johnston is an Aurora City Council member. Ryan Ross and Omar Montgomery are on Aurora's Community Police Task Force. Studies across the country have undertaken similar efforts as Aurora to reform public safety. How do they stack up and how do the task force force recommendations go far enough to enact change? Rachel Pickens is the executive director of the National Police Accountability Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Avery. What struck you most after hearing that conversation with the Aurora Police Accountability Task Force? 
What struck me most was how encouraging um, the recommendations are and how serious they have taken their positions on this task force and recognizing that the core of any true reform is truly accountability and transparency. I was very encouraged after hearing their conversation. The top line recommendation was to create the Office of Police Accountability, Transparency and Transformation. But other cities have created their own oversight committees that police reform advocates say have been ineffective. Why do they say that? I think they say it because they're right. You know, what I heard from the current task force is the recognition that most oversight committees or offices, they just don't have any funding. They don't have true commitment from the government in which it was enacted. So having, you know, funding, staff, and just true power that can change policy internally in policing that is what I think is missing in current oversight committees. And the fact that this committee has recognized that too, I think is a signal that there is uh, more recognition that these things need you know, more power. And are there other differences in Aurora that you see in this OPAD office than other pl- things that other cities have proposed? I do. So the subpoena power they mentioned, having the, having the opportunity to overturn investigations, that, those are huge. I don't think I've ever seen something like that before. And I hope that MPAP, we have received a lot of interest about oversight committees. And I hope that the Colorado, other War Colorado one will be a model for future ones. And of course, these are proposals and it would take a lot of work to get them um, put into policy. When cities first try to undertake police reform like this, what are the biggest hurdles that they have to overcome? There's several. I think the first is just the impression that any reform would be a negative effect to policing. I think that's not true, as we have seen. Uh, Body cameras and others have been enacted, and policing, I think any reform will be good for policing. Um, The second thing, pushback, is probably just from the police officers and the unions themselves. it's new. Having you know independent monitors review police officers and law enforcement, that is uncomfortable and new. And you know, until these are enacted, there will continue to be pushback because people are afraid of the unknown. But they shouldn't be. Like they the task force said, this is also a collaborative uh, office. It's not just working in isolation. There is feedback with the community, with the police officers in the construction of this office, and that will continue when it's enacted. How do other recommendations made by the task force compare to the reforms the National Police Accountability Project advocates for? They're they're in line. I mean, you know, here's the thing about reform is that one, one and done reform is just not enough. Um, all reform should be based on evidence and the fact that it works and that any reform has to be attached to some semblance of accountability and transparency. You know, body cameras and diversity training and more police training are excellent and they should always be enacted. But, you know, if law enforcement officers feel like there are no consequences to their actions, then it's really hard to enforce other reforms as well. Another reform your organization supports is the Colorado DA accountability bill. It would track discovery violations, create a system of enforcement, and remove prosecutorial immunity. Why are these reforms important? Well, 
policing doesn't act in isolation. You know, you know, when it comes to reform, you have to look at the entire system. And prosecutors are a big part of that system. They have a very close relationship with police officers for a good reason. They have to work with them when it comes to, you know, solving crimes and making sure those receive, you know, just punishment. But, you know, also let's recognize that there could be conflict of interest. And if there is a police misconduct incident, you know, prosecutors may be hesitant to push those charges because they work so closely with officers and that may affect the relationship in the future. So making sure that not just policing, but other elements of the system are also reviewed and other actors are held accountable for their actions is an integral part in any future transformative police reform. The justice system, it is an entire body. It's not just policing. It's not just DAs. There's so much in that um, in that system. This bill was introduced in the Colorado General Assembly this year, but it didn't have enough support to move forward. How do you think advocates can work to get more support next year? I think we got to start today and making sure that those doubts that individuals have about accountability are, are addressed and they are swayed. Um, like I said before, I there's a lot of change happening and change can scare some people, but it shouldn't. Um, another thing, too, is making sure that everyone has inputs and that there is some sense of ownership in future forward reforms. Um, I do think that we need to always have the community front and center when it comes to making sure we have support for these efforts, but making sure that the actors who will be affected, too, that they also have some voice, but doesn't that doesn't, you know, Overcover doesn't overpower what the reforms are actually for. Um, so, yeah, I think that we need to start today. We need more input, but we also need to make sure that these, we have to emphasize how important these are for just general public safety. And as you're making the case to someone who maybe is unfamiliar with these issues or not convinced, what is your strongest argument for making that kind of change? We're all affected by the current system of public safety. And if I'm not safe, then you're not safe. And trust is an important integral part in having a very strong public safety, safety system. So we, we need to hold actors who abuse the system to account so that everyone feels safe, they feel trusting of the public safety system, and that we can move forward and, and try to make things better for everyone. It's, it's integral for just a just society. And we heard from the Aurora Community Police Task Force about how important it is for them to involve the community, whether that's opening up meetings or seeking input. Do you see the same kind of community involvement on the the front and DA accountability? Good question. I think it's getting there. It's getting there. I think prosecutorial accountability is, is not as well known as just police accountability, but it's getting there, too. And do you see growing support for prosecutor reform nationwide? Another good question. Slowly, slowly. I think one people, once more people understand how prosecutors play a role in this, then there will be. Earlier this week, Derek Chauvin was found guilty of the murder of George Floyd. Does the verdict help bolster police reform efforts? I think I'm a people many people have said this week, is that it's a first step to accountability, which is a first step to justice. You know, the verdict, Derek Chauvin, he was the exception because of the verdict of the trial, not because of his actions. And I'm hopeful that when there are other cases like this, that we will see more instances of guilty verdicts. But 
you know, it, we have to see, as you, as we all know, that there have been other shootings and police killings this week, and it seems that it's taking too long for these reforms to happen. And I hope that when people see that there are consequences to the actions of officers who act in bad faith, that they'll recognize that we need more of that. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Rachel Pickens is the executive director of the National Police Accountability Project. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. And in this upcoming season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something starts May 11th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. What happens when victims of crime fall through the cracks on American Indian reservations? And what recourse do people have outside of the courts? David Heska Wombly Wyden of Denver delves into the barriers to justice for Native Americans on reservations in his novel Winter Counts. It's a finalist for the Colorado Book Award in the thriller category. I first spoke with David in 2019. He's a member of the Sikchongu Lakota Nation. Winter Counts explores the complex interplay between tribal, state, and federal justice systems and what falls through the cracks. What led you to make that central to your novel? Well, I've been concerned with the problem of criminal justice on Native reservations for some time. And you can write as many social study uh, research papers as you want, but fiction and art have the chance to reach a lot more people. So as a writer... I decided to make this the central theme of the book because I've been aware of it and concerned about this for so many years. And tell me a little bit about what makes that a complex relationship. So the problem is, is on Native American reservations, you have overlapping jurisdictions between the federal government, state governments, and tribal governments. And they overlap and conflict. And this makes it exceptionally difficult to prosecute certain crimes, especially felony crimes. And what happens when it is difficult to prosecute? What makes it difficult to prosecute is a number of factors, but mostly what is known as the Major Crimes Act, a law that was passed in 1885 by the United States Congress. And the Major Crimes Act takes away the power of Native nations to prosecute crimes that occur on their own nations and involving their own people. What happens is that when a crime occurs on a Native reservation, tribal authorities must contact the FBI and federal prosecutors and refer the case to them. However, about one-third to half of the time, federal investigators decline to prosecute these cases, which means that violent offenders are free to go out and offend again. This is obviously a massive problem on Native reservations right now. And we'll get back into your novel and how that plays into your novel in just a moment. But you grew up in Denver, and your mother was raised on the Rosebud Reservation. What was it like for you to live in two worlds, urban Denver and visiting the reservation? It was strange. Uh, I'm a Denver native. I grew up in the Swansea, Elyria neighborhood, which is one of the poorest and most challenged neighborhoods. But I love it. It's my home. And then later I moved to Aurora. And so I would live in these urban neighborhoods. And then I would travel during the summers to the reservation where I saw people even worse off than me. So it was strange to balance Uh, sort of the urban lifestyle with the reservation lifestyle. So I never felt completely that I fit in either world. Tell me a little bit more about that. In what way? 
Well, when I would visit the reservation, they thought, uh, the kids there thought I was just fabulously wealthy, which was hilarious, of course, because we were quite poor. And so I just, I didn't feel, again, that I was really accepted for a lot of the native kids. Sometimes, you know, I was too urban or or because I'm mixed, I was, you know, maybe not 100% native. And then back home, I was viewed, obviously, in Denver as being, you know, one of the native kids. And so I didn't quite fit in. So it, it was, I very much felt as an outsider. But this is something that I think serves writers well. Do you still feel like you're living in two worlds? Very much so. Very much so. When I visit the reservation, you know, now it's it's different. I'm this author and all that, and people want things from me, and they want me to do things. They want me to help them with certain causes, and I do as much as I can. So, yeah, the, the, the feeling of never fully fitting in either world is something that I think never escapes you. And how do you navigate that with your family and as a parent? I have two sons, ages 12 and 14, and I'm trying to raise them with as much of a Native perspective as I can in Denver, Colorado, but it's not easy. So I'm constantly probing how much do I want them to assimilate? How much do I want them to fit in? And so it's, uh, it really is a tightrope. Let's go back into Winter Counts. The main character, Virgil Wounded Horse, is a vigilante of sorts. What is his role in the community? Virgil Wounded Horse is the hero of my novel. Virgil Wounded Horse is a private vigilante. He is a hired thug. And the way that he works into my novel is when people can't get justice, say that a young woman is raped on the reservation and the perpetrator is caught, but the federal authorities refuse to prosecute. Well, the people, the family want justice. And so they are going to hire somebody like my guy. They're going to hire Virgil Wounded Horse, and they pay him a sum of money to go out and get private justice. And his sum is $100 for each bone he breaks and $100 for each tooth he knocks out. He is based on real people on my reservation. And like you said, he's based on a real people, but you haven't actually met an enforcer necessarily. So what kind of conversations are people having about enforcers? This is talked about very much in kind of hushed tones on the reservation. And so, no, I've not actually interviewed a private enforcer, but I've spoken with many people on my reservation and our neighbors, the Pine Ridge Reservation folks there. And I've learned about how they work and how they operate. It's not something that's widely publicized. It's kind of talked about very quietly, but they do exist. And that price is a real price that you've heard. It's a real price, but I I can't deny I have obviously dramatized uh, my character and his actions to make it more entertaining. So vigilante justice, that's a really complicated idea and one that's potentially it could cause harm. How do you balance that? So Virgil starts to question the morality of his chosen profession, and he's uncomfortable with it because he's a smart, self-aware guy. So I do think that the issue of vigilante justice is troublesome. And so that's the role of fiction is to grapple with these issues. And you're taking a look at this through fiction, but do you have personal experiences that made you want to write about this? I don't have any personal experience on the res. I've certainly been the victim of crimes here in Denver, but it's more the idea that a woman can be murdered or raped or a child can be harmed. And there's often no recourse for Native Americans on the reservation. It's this, these issues that just inflame me and made me wanted, want to write this book. In this novel, drugs, specifically heroin and methamphetamine, trickle into the reservation. Virgil's own nephew tries heroin, and that sets Virgil on a mission to track the drug cartel all the way from South Dakota to Denver. How do you see substance abuse affecting the community on Rosebud Reservation? 
It's a terrible, terrible problem right now on the Rosebud Reservation. Methamphetamine is the scourge of our people, and heroin, unfortunately, is making more inroads. I hate and despise those drugs, and so part of this novel is to bring awareness to the growing problem of drug addiction on reservations. We have very few resources for substance abuse counseling, and I just want people to know that it's a real problem on our lands, and so I'm hoping that this book can have a positive impact there as well. There are also negative stereotypes about Native communities and substance abuse. How do you tackle writing about drugs and addiction without strengthening those stereotypes? One of the choices that I made in this book is my main character is a former alcoholic, but he is not a current alcoholic. I did not want to feed into those stereotypes of all Natives being alcoholics. However, it would be foolish to turn my head away from the fact that drug abuse is a major problem on our reservations. Absolutely. You call this book a meditation on Native identity. Can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. Virgil Wounded Horse, obviously I tapped into my own feelings of being, you know, an urban Native. And so uh, Virgil struggles with being a mixed-race Native. He is what we call an Ayeska. Ayeska in the Lakota language is somebody who speaks white, someone who is a translator. So he is both white and Native And he struggles with this. How does he fit into the world? And over the course of the novel, he comes to terms with his own identity, and he ultimately accepts and reclaims his Native identity. That's sort of the arc of the book. And there is something important, too, about talking about a modern Native identity. Very much so. Uh, Natives today exist in a a strange space where we're the invisible minority in a lot of ways. We don't show up on a lot of TV shows unless it's something from the 1800s, some traditional Western. And so we're invisible in some ways, you know, I I like to say that that we belong everywhere and nowhere. And so, you know, these were originally our lands, you know, but on the other hand, we've obviously been pushed off of them onto these tiny little spaces. And so being a Native in the 21st century means how much of your own Native identity do you hang on to and how much do you accommodate and assimilate into the dominant culture? The name of the book, Winter Counts, it's more than a nod to the season. Can you tell me what Winter Counts are and why you chose it as a title? Absolutely. Winter counts is the calendar system for the Lakota people. And rather than using numbers, it uses pictographs, little pictures. And so in the novel, uh, my hero, uh, Virgil, and his sister, Marie, when they're kids, they draw little pictures to mark the seasons. Uh, So winter counts refers to not only the calendar system used by Lakotas, but also by the fact that winter is a hard season for many natives. And in the book, it really is. David, thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. David Heska Wombly Wyden is a member of the Sichungu Lakota Nation. His novel, Winter Counts, is a Colorado Book Award finalist in the thriller category. We spoke in September of 2019. Finally today, the pandemic has exasperated the economic situation for people experiencing homelessness. According to the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, demand for shelter beds in Metro Denver has increased by 30 to 60 percent. With limited affordable housing, encampments have exploded across the city. A group of hip-hop artists came together earlier this year to drop a new track taking aim at Denver's urban camping ban and the encampment sweeps carried out by Mayor Michael Hancock's administration. The supergroup was organized by Jeff Campbell, head of Emancipation Theater Company, and features a a past guest of our show, John Shockness, a.k.a. Kid Astronaut. Here they are with Message to the Mayor. Starving, stomach touching, no luncheon, broke, no hope, pocket lit clutching, can't eat, can't sleep, can't function. 
cop pushing me in the street, bum rushing. Pull something out of the trash can and ate it. Pretend imagining my mom just made it. Breath smelling like boat smoke with no soap. Sprinkle of soap, holes that my toenails poke in my sock. From walking the block with no shoes. If I die, I won't even make it on the news. Bump chill, giving the spill and narration. On your watch, legislation. Talk about my tax dollars, put it in contents. Buy land, build a complex. It's not that complex. I'm not impressed, cause we're failing the test. Folks claiming that they're blessed, but you're looking a mess. I'm in raw, keep a watchful eye in my eye. What you do when the dog comes out on the block? Kids with no place to go, they just roaming. Pushed out from gentrification and zoning, honing on the issues. Get it fixed so we can praise you on the next one. Remix. If Colorado's the best place to live, change it. Homeless can't even get warm meals or blankets. Message to the Mayor, a new track from a collective of Denver hip-hop artists looking to raise awareness for people experiencing homelessness. Thank you for joining us, and special thanks to producer Carla Jimenez for her work on this show. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Lack of humanity damaged us from the rear. We got money for wars, but can't house the poor. Bank accounts galore, hiding billions offshore. Too many rich people making meals. Poverty's profits are deceptive. Now tell us who's the villain. You'd rather see them in coffee.